Welcome everyone to the She Can Fix It podcast. This month's episode consists of a great interview with Dr. Jothi Morali Larson. Dr. Morali Larson is a sports medicine and trauma surgeon in private practice in Northern California. I wanted to interview Dr. Morali Larson in order to understand the life of a private practice surgeon. I had a great time speaking with Dr. Morali Larson and I'm very excited to share our conversation. I hope you enjoy this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Jothi Morali Larson. Dr. Jothi Morali Larson, thank you so much for joining us on the She Can Fix It podcast. I've been very excited to speak with you and I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. Absolutely. I'm psyched to be on it. Awesome. So, Dr. Morali Larson, can you please, in your own words, describe your background, where you went to medical school, residency, fellowship, and your post-fellowship years? Sure. Um, So, medical school was at Emory in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, How I got there was, I'm actually from the Boston area originally, and Boston sports team, fan for life, Um, always be, have a close place in my heart. Um, (laughs) And I'd gone to undergrad in New York City, which um, to me seemed to be kind of the perfect distance from home. Um, Right. And I was looking to get to um, another urban environment that was a little more livable. Um, And I had Mm -hmm. checked out Emory, interviewed there, and I really liked what seemed to be the experience at Grady uh, Memorial Hospital there, which is level one trauma center, Um, diverse population, um, but also at Emory, very uh, livable environment in terms of being an undergrad campus, having access to all the sports resources there in terms of the intramural and club teams and and the setting. Um, Yeah, and all of that. So um, so that was really exciting to me. So um, ended up going there for medical school. Um, From there, came in with an interest in orthopedics. And um, at the time, Dr. Lisa Canada, who is a very well-known prominent orthopedic trauma surgeon, multiple leadership roles. She was there at the time. So I was really lucky um, to cross Mm -hmm. paths with her and be mentored by her. And so she um, really propelled my connection with orthopedics and interest. And Mm -hmm. um, so I I knew during medical school, um, uh, when I finished there towards the end of Emory, I was ready to come a little bit closer to home again. So I had looked pretty closely at Brown for uh, Mm -hmm. training for residency and I rotated there. Um, And Again, it was it was close enough to home, about 45 minutes away from where my right. parents were to be um, close enough that I could go home and see them on weekends and go to Red Sox games with my dad, but um, wow. far enough that I had, you know, my own space and all of that. Um, so um, I ended up there for residency training and we all do a trauma fellowship sixth year. And then, um, but I came in definitely thinking about sports and knowing uh, sports fellowship was in the plans for me. Um, So I had the focus Mm -hmm. on sports while I was there. And um, I was always open to going to the West Coast um, throughout my training and growing up. I love, you know, warm weather, being outdoors, uh, West Coast lifestyle, all that stuff. (laughs) So you're from Hawaii, so um, I know you know that well. Um, Very well, very well. Yeah, but I think I wasn't quite ready to make the leap during my younger years. I kind of wanted to be within, um, you know, reasonable travel from home. And um, so that's kind of why I stayed up and down the East Coast. And, um, but was definitely open to it for sports fellowship. And um, I had looked at, you know, a lot of different programs. Um, UC Davis was particularly attractive to me. Um, They have three 
sports attendings there um mm. and also a foot and ankle sports attending um mm-hmm. out of the three attendings one was a female sports doc and she was pretty pretty young pretty um within her first five years out of fellowship and um you know, I got to interview with her actually at the academy meeting that previous mm-hmm. year and um, really felt a good connection with her and felt like she would be a good mentor for me, along with the other two who were awesome. Right. It was just really, really varied um, in terms of the the training I knew I would get. So mm-hmm. um, was open to it, came to Sacramento and just loved it, fell in love with Northern <laughs> California. I was um, going to Tahoe, you know, every other weekend. I was going to the oh, coast. Awesome. Um, yeah, San Francisco. Yeah. My best friend was there at the time. So I was just kind of mm-hmm. eating up the Northern Cali lifestyle. So, um, Mm -hmm. ended up definitely wanting to stay for sure. Um, and so when I did my job search, I was looking to stay in the region. Um, and, um, ended up with a large group private practice for my first job out of fellowship, which was Mm -hmm. in the East Bay of San Francisco. So, um, about 45 minutes away from the city and, Mm um, you know, great setting, great weather, all of that. Um, but it just wasn't the right fit in terms of, um, career wise. So, mm-hmm. um, ended up splitting off and location wise ended up coming to San Jose in the South Bay of San Francisco. Um, right. and location is suits me really well. Um, mm-hmm. and solo private practice suits me really well. And we'll definitely delve into that. Um, but yes. that's, that's how I ended up, um, where I am. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. And speaking of private practice, yes. one of the reasons I really, really, really wanted you on the podcast is because, you know, private practice is something that for us residents, we don't hear much about, and mm-hmm. we're just basically taught through the lens of academia, which mm-hmm. is great for a lot of folks. But mm-hmm. the AOS 2018 census report uh, stated that about 36% of orthopedic surgeons are in private practice. So mm-hmm. I was hoping that you mm-hmm. can talk to us about your experience and the process that you had about learning about mm-hmm. private practice. Absolutely. So totally felt the same way in training. We really, we see academics because that's where we're training and we really mm-hmm. don't get exposed to private practice or know what it's all about. So I think the idea of it, even at that stage, definitely appealed to me. I think I've had um, somewhat of an entrepreneurship type of, um, you know, part of my personality that mm-hmm. um likes that um, that adventure and that risk taking and um, right. even though there is some uncertainty um, and and really the the freedom to design um, something the way you want it so I kind of had the idea that it would appeal to me um, you know I definitely thought about academics and employed for sure and we'll, we'll talk about comparisons among the three sort of main mm-hmm. options of, within orthopedic surgery um, but you know in terms of the pros and cons i thought that the pros for me in private practice really seemed to be appealing so um in terms of gaining exposure uh, i did during residency we had some affiliate faculty that came and did our clinic with us at brown and um, there was a group of two out of a local group of five surgeons who mm-hmm. um, who spent time with us teaching and they had a private practice. So it was a, a small group format type of private practice. And um, nice. during our fourth year, we had a research block with a two month research block. And I spoke with my chairman and said, you know, I want to spend some time um, seeing what they do in their office, spend some time in their mm-hmm. office with them, you know, and, and scrubbing cases and seeing how private practice is. And so, um, you know, of course, you still have responsibilities call and some cases you cover at the with your residency, but I was able to get some time for a month, um, 
not every single day, but, but it's some good exposure during that month to go and rotate with them. Um, and you know, they, yeah, they were good guys and I really, there's definitely a lot of differences. So they were, you know, um, for instance, there was one who is shoulder in sports, which is something I, I had a big interest in and he would go Mm -hmm. and scrub cases with his spine colleague just to assist. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they help each other out, but also, you know, it helps to, you know, you get the assist, um, the assist Mm -hmm. fee, but mostly just to help each other out. Um, and so I thought there was aspects of that, which were maybe plus minus, um, but, but Mm -hmm. sort of interesting. Um, you know, they did their own casting. They, um, you know, it's just, it's just a different, different sort of day-to-day type of uh, responsibilities. Um, but they, they were definitely happy. And I thought, um, you know, it definitely was something that had a uh, positive influence on me in terms of eventually choosing private practice. Um, So that was a little bit of exposure in terms of the actual business aspect of it. I think um, you don't really get much of that during residency. Not at all. And it seems, and it's, and it's scary. And I think just sort of the general, um, uh, conversation about private practice is, you know, um, payers are declining in their reimbursement. You know, it's really hard to sustain. It's, you know, you're a dinosaur. If you want to do private practice, everybody's (laughs) going the ways of bigger and bigger conglomerations, um, groups, hospital employed or academic. Um, and so it's pretty daunting to think about trying Mm -hmm. to do it. Um, and so, you know, I had heard all of that. Um, I still went into private practice and, and I love it. I'm very happy right, with my decision. Right. Um, but in terms of the exposure then, um, you know, if there's a way for any residents or even medical students listening to have some kind of experience like that where they can spend some time with a surgeon who's in private practice, um, mm-hmm. you know, because outside of your residency program, you know, it, it's something that you would have to uh, seek in order to find. Um, And then in terms of, um, you know, materials or education, the Academy has a resident component to the annual meeting that I think talks Mm -hmm. a little bit about practice and and options, gives you some advice on um, contracts. But in terms of making that initial decision to pursue private practice, there, there isn't a whole lot of guidance. So I think, I think that's, that's where something like this podcast and even, um, continued, you know, uh, mentorships or resources we have through Ruth Jackson Mm -hmm. can be very helpful to, to get somebody's perspective on it. Um, and a lot of help because there's a lot of steps along the way, um, a lot of details. And so having somebody to help guide you through that is, is huge. Um, so, yeah, you know, I, I, I went through my training. I definitely was open to different types, um, but I think private practice was always, always an interest. And so I've been mm-hmm. uh, figuring that out along the way. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. And I, and I know that you had mentioned that there's different models of private yes. practice. Can you elaborate and just purely educate me? Because I literally have no idea. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, so I would say the, the easiest way to break it down is by size. So um, the mm-hmm. first is going to be your solo private practice model, where it's just you. You hang a shingle and run a business, and, and that's you. Um, then right. you have your medium size, small to medium size private practice groups, which is maybe three to 10 practitioners that um, share overhead and and have an office together. Um, Typically, there's um, one, what's called a tax ID for the practice. So 
I'll talk about that more, but that's basically you bill under what a tax ID is, which is mm. associated with a small business. Um, and then there's a large multi-specialty group um, where it can be, I've seen some as big as 70, 70 different practitioners, wow. which can be yeah, surgeons or um, even, you know, non-operative sports medicine, pain management, um, you know, mid-levels. And those mm-hmm. are, um, you know, groups where you'll have certain advantages like a call center where um, mm-hmm. when patients call, they're routed to a call center and then they're uh, further routed to which um, which surgeon or which practitioner they can see for an appointment. Um, mm-hmm. You'll have, you know, shared expenses. You'll have a lot of business aspects of your practice that are managed. And that, that can be good in, in a lot of ways and bad in a lot of ways. Um, and that is one where you could, if you wanted to specialize, um, it's probably a little bit more um, amenable to that, say, than mm-hmm. solo, where you'd, you'd want to be, you know, a bit more general. It's a little bit harder to super specialize. Um, so those right. are the main main factors. Um, the the pros to solo are, of course, complete freedom and ability mm-hmm. to completely design your practice, make all the choices you want, hire the staff you want, pick the office you're in. Um, and even the, the day-to-day details, like, you know, picking an office for me, it's important to have a window in my office and I'm able to, you know, do something like that, you know, which right, makes right. day-to-day practice going to work. It makes it, mm-hmm. you know, changes your mood and makes it, um, you know, makes it a good, good work environment. Um, right. Whereas with a large multi-specialty group, you're not going to be the one making hiring decisions. So you might have, mm-hmm. you know, your MA who's maybe not the greatest MA, but it's not, you know, your choice really to um, make those hiring type decisions. Um, mm-hmm. And then in the middle with the, you know, the, the small group, um, you know, with anything, you want to try to make sure you have good relationships with everybody. I think it's a little bit easier with the smaller group versus the the very large. I mean, imagine any group of 70 people and there's going to be personalities that you don't like. Yes. You know, so, yes. <laughs> um, and trying to get um, sort of a common goal for a very large mm-hmm. group, um, it proves to be difficult. Whereas, you know, um, maybe a group of a three to five surgeons, it's probably a bit easier. Um, mm. So definitely pros and cons to each each size each side Mm -hmm. yes and i know we've talked about the pros and cons of the various private practice models and i was hoping we can touch on just the various pros and cons of private practice versus Mm -hmm. academia and i know we've touched about you know freedom and such Mm -hmm. with the Mm -hmm. private practice model Mm -hmm. but what are some other kind of advantages of the uh, private practice model? Sure. Um, yep. So the freedom in general, so freedom to design your practice the way you want, choose the kind of cases you want to do, um, and even sort of respond and change accordingly. So, um, you know, for instance, I'm adding a second office location, which is going to be um, a better commute for where I'm going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's going to help me capture a different patient population. So it's going to be on the east side of San Jose, which um, even though it's the same city, it's just completely different demographics. So it's more Spanish speaking. It's more um, diverse. I think it's less... you know, it's just um, ability to diversify not only my practice, but my patient population. Um, And it's Mm -hmm. a little bit more um, sort of quote underserved, meaning there's a lot of surgeons on the west side of town, but not really on the east side. So it's going to definitely help me um, treat a a varied patient population, but also help my volume. Um, So ability to make make decisions like that um, based on Mm -hmm. your preference and, you know, what you want to do. 
then uh, you know and then of course the freedom of your time so that is huge <laughs> so yes. i think for a- any of us um you know i always knew i wanted balance i think one of my biggest struggles with residency um was not you know, having the time to exercise or time to just be healthy, yes. <laughs> just or time to, yes. you know, time that was ever your own, you're, you're you were like mm-hmm. owned by, you know, your program. So yes. um, the ability now to say, you know, in two weeks, I want to take Wednesday afternoon because I want to, you know, spend some time with my daughter like that is it's huge. Mm-hmm. Um, and even now I have it built in where I take two out two half days a week. And, um, you know, on a call week, that might, be go might might go away and I might have more cases, but another week I might take a morning off to, you know, right. do whatever I want to do. So complete flexibility that way, which is just awesome. Um, then, you know, so I think all of that, um, being able to choose which cases you do. So, you know, I'm sports mm-hmm. and trauma and we'll talk a little more about that, but, um, being able to, to really diversify and maintain variety that way, um, and, and mm-hmm. do the types of cases I want to do. Um, then, you know, that versus um, hospital employed or academic. So I think, um, you know, in hearing all of your other podcast interviews with all of the other awesome um, academic surgeons, they <laughs> Thank are... Thank you for listening. <laughs> oh, absolutely. It's just, it's inspiring. And it, it's just, it's oh, awesome. And there's you, so you. many commonalities, stuff you hear and you're like, oh, yeah, like that's exactly, yes, you know, know, like know. what I think or, um, or not, you know, there's, of course, differences too. Um, mm-hmm. But... Um, yeah, you know, they are all like research superstars. And I think that's awesome if you want to do research. But um, for me, I realized even early on during residency that um, certain parts of it were so exciting. You know, I did research with Dr. Canada as a medical student, I got to present at the academy. And it was just, I mean, I just phenomenal Mm -hmm. experience just, you know, but um, that nitty gritty of doing the research work is it's a lot and it's not, um, it's not for everybody. And, Mm -hmm. you know, during residency, I did research, but, you know, some of my co-residents, they were just so good at it. And I just didn't, Mm -hmm. I never felt like I was, you know, I just never felt like I was great at it and didn't want to really be um, spending time doing grant proposals and, you know, Mm -hmm. putting together projects and then revising and reworking and, and and it's just, it's a lot of work. And I think it's so important to do, but it's, it's, it's not for everybody. And I knew it wasn't necessarily right. for me. Um, right. So that is, but, uh, you know, on the other hand, if that's, you're interested in research, you know, um, private practice, you definitely can do research, but if, if that's a huge important part um, of what you want to do, I think that's better suited for academics where you can take, mm-hmm. you know, half day or one day a week devoted to research and you're supported and you have all kinds of resources that, you know, your institution, you have residents and fellows that help, you know, get on your projects and colleagues to collaborate with and all of that. Um, right. Um, and then, you know, the other aspects of um, academia versus um, private practice or even employed. So, you know, teaching was something I always really enjoyed and I didn't want to give up. Um, and so I think, of course, in academia, you have more of a chance to do that. Um, mm-hmm. Now, I would say, you know, I'm not um, I do have an academic appointment because I take call at one of our local um level two trauma centers, but I have a UCSF uh, affiliation because I do that. Mm -hmm. So I do have some fellows working with me sometimes, but it's pretty variable. I'm not a core part of the, um, you know, I'm not um, involved on, you know, 
week to week, but I do have some fellows mm-hmm. working with me. Um, so I do some education that way. Um, I also, you know, I go and I speak and do career days and um, have, you know, um, students come with me in my office. So I definitely have opportunities right. to teach and teach. And I, I do enjoy that. Um, I even work with mm-hmm. a lot of athletic trainers and do um, mm-hmm. community talks. And so teach that way. Um, but it's not so much residents and fellows. Um, mm-hmm. So I think if you know that teaching is huge for you, um, you know, academics is probably a good fit. Um, I think for me, I actually do really enjoy being the hands-on surgeon doing the case. So while I definitely right. <laughs> have some cases where um, I've figured out some techniques to do some things without an assist, um, you know, I, I do really like seeing my surgical plan through start to finish being the one, you know, putting in the screws and the, and, mm-hmm. and the hardware and all of that. Um, so I think that is you know, the advantage of private practice, of course, is you, it's your case, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's you, it's your patient. Um, right. And um, you can be as efficient or not as efficient as you want, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, versus academics where you're going to be teaching more. Um, right. And then the hospital employed um, is, you know, sort of the third major option. Um, that is where, um, you know, you have a definite, um you have security in that. So, you know, um, and you have constant referral stream and you're not, um, as worried about that. Um, and you have a lot of, you know, financial advantages, but, um, uh, definitely not much freedom. So, you know, Mm -hmm. you're going to be kind of doing what, what needs to be done. Um, and your schedule is going to be set. Um, and you know, who's working for you is going to be set and you're not going to have that, um, have that freedom. So, um, those are kind of the different ways to compare it. Um, we had, you had asked a little bit about, um, specifically, I guess I'll let you get into it with the, the COVID question. <laughs> Sorry. I did. I did. I, kn- I, I know that might be a bit of a sore subject, but I, you know, I think it's something where, you know, as we all faced just this huge unprecedented obstacle when the coronavirus pandemic hit and is still here for many hospital systems. And, you know, we here at Yale, we just had to fully transform what we were doing, you know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we as and we were very fortunate to have great leadership in Dr. Latanza, who basically just completely organized our department and everything. And um, everybody just had to buy into this. And so I was very curious as to what you as a surgeon in private practice had to do, not only taking care of your patients, but also your practice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, definitely. Um, that was huge. I mean, it's been a huge impact for all of us and um, pretty anxiety provoking. I remember yes. um, March 16th is when the shelter in place went into effect. That was a Monday. And my Tuesday is my big office day. And I remember that Tuesday, I actually had 25 patient appointments and everyone called and canceled. <laughs> and um, it was like, right. oh my God, like, you know, it was overnight that um, yes. everything just bam, just, you know, just hit and had to sort of scramble and figure out how um, I was going to deal with that. And of course, this situation has been unfolding and we've been, you know, the restrictions and guidelines and timelines have been changing and it's been a moving target. So we've all been um, sort of 
uh, trying to swim in those waters and figure right. out what we're doing. Right. Um, but I would say, you know, I realized quickly, obviously, that telemedicine was going to have to be implemented. So mm-hmm. um, I had my office manager look into options. We found one that's good and it's free. So we um, oh, implemented wow. that. Yes. <laughs> that's always beneficial. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and so, you know, got that going. Um I would say for ortho, it's not um, ideal. There's a lot of things that you really want to examine the patient. Um, And then, of course, you know, my immediate post-ops, you know, I want to see them. I want to see those incisions. I want to just make Mm -hmm. sure, you know, everything's looking okay. Um, And so I did still do some urgent inpatient, um, in-person appointments. Um, You know, we screened everybody. We took temperatures. Everybody wore masks and gloves. But, um, yeah, so that had to be done. And, you know, for those, I would say about two months, um, things were relatively shut down. I did still keep my practice open. Um, I still saw the urgent cases and I still did telemedicine visits. Even that was pretty low. A lot of people just sort of, you know, stuff that's not urgent, they were just putting off. Um, Mm -hmm. And so in terms of the logistics of running it, um, you know, I kept, I have one full-time employee since it's just me. So I kept him on. I wanted to pay him throughout, you know, I didn't want him to Mm -hmm. um, take a hit that way. And he's, he's awesome. I want to retain him. So um, (laughs) I, you know, paid him. um, And um, in terms of, you know, elective cases, of course, those were shut down. And that's a big part of my practice. So for a few months, um, I was still taking call. So that actually helped a lot um, in terms of having some, um, not only income, but but cases to do. Um, and so, right. you know, of course, not only the inpatient, the hip fractures and so forth, but um, some of the follow-ups, the wrist fractures, ankle fractures. So those, I, you know, as I fix, you know, those can't wait, right. you know. So, um, so those, I still was able to do some cases at the surgery centers and mm-hmm. um, keep my practice going a little bit that way. Um, there were a lot of resources for small businesses that had to be taken advantage of. Um, and so, um, you know, there were various ways to find out about that. We certainly got a lot of emails from the Academy, from our subspecialty societies. Uh, locally, I'm part of South Bay American Medical Women's Association. So it's our local chapter. Oh, nice. Of AMWA. Um, yeah, it's been great, great resource, great connections. Um, Good. And yeah, and so they had circulated a lot of emails. Basically, it's all mostly, I would say, probably 90% of um, private practice um, physicians, and they're in mm-hmm. small groups typically, or even solo like me. And um, so circulating a lot of really useful, you know, practical information, people who had applied for this or that and not had luck. So um, the biggest one, there's a few different programs. One was the Paycheck Protection Program, which was um, a small business. Um, it says loan, but essentially it's a, it's a forgivable loan. So that's mm-hmm. huge. So, um, you know, I started by applying through Chase, which was my, my business banking um, company, and got rejected for some paperwork issue, which uh, was like super stressful. Um, and it was like, everybody was saying, oh, you know, apply right away. These funds are, right. are getting snatched up and they're going to yes. run out and this and that. And so that was super stressful. And then I also used Square for um, credit card payments in my office. Mm-hmm. And so they actually had the opportunity to apply through them also. And fortunately, oh, nice. everything went through with them and I was able to get oh, uh, get the loan. So yeah, oh, that's congratulations. Huge. Thank that's you. So much. Oh, it was yeah. huge. I was so so relieved. It was huge. And so it's enough to, you know, pay my staff, pay myself a little bit, um, right. pay my overhead mainly. It's mainly for, you know, not even so much myself, but overhead and staff. Right. So, um, so right. you still be able to pay my rent and all my month to month overhead. Um, 
And so that there was the um, a couple different stimulus grants from the government. So um, one came through automatically, another you had to apply for. But just staying on top of all of that, making sure I was taking advantage of all those opportunities. There was right. a few different um, grants available as well. So Facebook had a small business grant program, which I haven't heard back yet, but I applied for. Um, nice. There was there's a fund called the Red Backpack Fund, which is um, through. Um, uh, Sarah Blakely, who's the um, CEO of Spanx. She is oh, supporting nice. women-owned businesses. And so she had this grant program available, which I applied for as well. So oh, those are cool. things that, yeah, I may or may not get, but at least taking advantage of some of those financial ways to support my practice and nice. keep it running. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And then in terms of patient care, because I still had my office manager working for me um, and I was still you know, around and available, um, right. there wasn't too many lapses in patient care and urgent um, things. You know, I was able to see um, and take care Mm -hmm. of so and then sometimes with the telemedicine you know if you see something that looks questionable then you can say okay just make an appointment and come in because Mm -hmm. I have to actually see your you know see your incision or or make sure you're getting your motion back after your ACL or you know whatever Mm -hmm. but um, yeah doing some limited in-person appointments as well nice very cool very cool I did want to talk about something that I think is so very confusing to me, and that is contract negotiations. Mm -hmm. And I assume that when you had gone out of fellowship and you were applying uh, for jobs and looking at jobs, you had to have that um, the savvy to be able to sit in on and be a part and participate and literally fight for yourself in these negotiations. So I was hoping that you can sort of talk to what it means to kind of represent yourself well in these situations. Sure. Um, so that's another thing that you maybe get a little bit of a taste of during residency, but not really. Um, right, and right. so I think the Academy has some resources. We actually have an awesome document on our website that was written by one of our professional development committee members. Um, mm-hmm. That's right now it's the members only um, Ruth Jackson portion. So maybe that'll motivate some people to join if they're not members already. (laughs) Um, But it's this super detailed document, very helpful on contract negotiation. Um, Mm -hmm. And so there, you know, then there's other resources out there that which are general, but this one is geared specifically to orthopedic surgeons, Um, you know, going in with knowing what you want and, um, you know, knowing sort of what your bottom line is. um, And, you know, knowing whether do you have the um, ability or the desire to walk away from a certain offer if it's not, you mm-hmm. know, they're not meeting your expectations. Um, so I think, and then in terms of having a baseline of going in, so, um, you know, if location's important to you, you might be willing to make some more compromises based on if something meets your, you know, your fit that way in terms of location. Um, or mm-hmm. if you have, you know, if you're a, a PD sports upper extremity doc and there's going to be maybe, you know, say, for instance, five academic positions that meet your criteria, you might be willing to accept, you know, maybe something that's not quite as, um, you know, financially lucrative, for instance, as, right. as somewhere else, because you, you want your, you want to be happy in your career and do exactly what you want to do. So um, mm-hmm. knowing those sort of um, requirements that you need met um, before you go in is important. Um, the, um, financially just you know you can look at different resources for knowing what a starting orthopedic surgeon salary is it's a little bit confusing because you can find various sources and it's 
quite yes. a range. <laughs> so it's really hard to know what is real. Um, mm-hmm. We definitely have, you know, an AAOS now. They'll um, publish, I believe it's annually. It may be uh, by, you know, maybe every two years, but uh, median orthopedic um, surgeon salary. And that is not necessarily starting, but it's, um, mm-hmm. you know, overall. So you, you can give a baseline that way for, you know, um, financially what orthopedic surgeons can expect. Um, you know, but then that may not be the only criteria you want met. It might be that um, you want a day of research time if you're negotiating for an academic position. Right. I had a attending at Brown who said to us, you know, um, when it, when you, you know, look at contracts for your first job, send it to me, I'll review it. Mm-hmm. So that was huge. Um, so I, I would hope that most residencies have somebody um, who's willing to right. do that. So that's huge. Right. Um, and I think you, you pretty much always have to have a lawyer look at mm-hmm. it. So um, how to find that lawyer. I had, uh, when I was doing my fellowship at UC Davis, um, you know, I would chat with the other fellows in the different departments and the um, arthroplasty fellow had been going through the process and he had a lawyer he used that he liked. So that's how I got the name of a lawyer. Um, And so, of course, there's fees associated with that, but I think it's worth it. Um, So Mm -hmm. because, um, you know, you can guarantee that um, a lawyer has looked at the contract coming from the practice that you're you're looking to join. So, um, having a lawyer, I think, look at it is huge. Um, Mm -hmm. And then in terms of, you know, the terms you're looking at, I think um, the way it's designed. So, you know, with academics, I think typically it's going to be a salary and Mm -hmm. there's potential for advancement. So I think those are the starting salary, I think, is going to be pretty much set. I don't know. You you can certainly try to negotiate that. um, But I think if you're unable to, I wouldn't feel defeated. I think that's going (laughs) to be um, feel difficult. But I think you want to make sure there's stipulations for potential for advancement um, Mm -hmm. with some compensation going along with that. Um, The hospital contracts, I think, are similar. Um, You know, and even for Kaiser, they're they're pretty set. Um, I think you know, you can find out what the rate is for everybody and if there's potential to, um, you know, negotiate certain things like like call compensation um, or other things. Um, within private practice, there is going to be some room for those things. So the way it's structured when you join a private practice, so this is using a large group model. Um, mm-hmm most typically you're going to join with some kind of salary. And when you start a practice, you're going to be negative for several months. And the reason for that is because there's a lot of overhead expenses that have to Mm -hmm. be paid no matter what, no matter how busy you are. And it takes a while to get busy. I think no matter where you go, it's going to take a while to get busy. Maybe at at a Kaiser or, um, you know, a medical foundation, they have, uh, referrals that are waiting for the next doctor, but but even then, you know, um, patients are gonna want to know who they're going to see. If you're mm-hmm. it's your first week on the job, they might you know um, yeah. want to you know they might that may they may, you may not have a full office your first you know several months, um, mm-hmm. and so um, you're definitely gonna start negative. So if you're joining a private practice, typically they'll they will pay you a salary. Um, you know, it's gonna be a lot lower than what you're eventually gonna make, but um, you know, finding out exactly how much they've paid, um, you know, prior surgeons there, you certainly can ask whether they're going to tell you the truth or not. You don't necessarily know, but, um, but I think 
most of the time you can just ask the other surgeons what they started at. Um, mm-hmm. And the practice should be very open to, you know, connecting you with everybody in their practice. Ask them. Um, right. It also could be helpful. And before I joined the large group, I spoke with a surgeon who had been there um, before um, and asked her, you know, what her experience was, why she left, um, and could definitely ask her questions like, you know, what did you start at in terms of mm-hmm. your salary? So so just, um, just ask them the questions, just not being afraid to ask people. Right, um, so right. To have a base of reference. Um, and then the way those are structured is usually it's about two years to a partnership track. That's pretty average. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the advantages of partnership are mostly you'll get ancillary income from the services they have, for instance, MRI or PT or various ways that they're deriving some kind of income that you can um, be privileged to once you're a partner. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the two years is I don't know, almost like a trial period, right. I guess, before, um, you know, you decide if you guys both um, are a good fit and mm-hmm. whether you want to stay for the long haul. And um, and that will, of course, be um, dedication not only in terms of where you're settling and starting your life um, and your practice, but also monetary. So the buy-in could be anywhere from, you know, 20K to 200K, depending on which practice you're going to. And then right. the monetary benefit on the flip side of that could vary. It could be maybe 100K to a few hundred K. Mm-hmm. So um, so that depends. And that's that's all going to be within your contract and something you need to review and um, have an, an attending and, and a lawyer look at um, and determine all those factors are important to you. Dr. Morelli Larson, I do want to talk about the fact that you have uh, dual fellowships in Mm -hmm. sports medicine and trauma surgery, Mm -hmm. which I think is very, very cool. And I wanted to ask you for your inspiration for Mm -hmm. doing those two fellowships. Ah, of course. Um, So as I mentioned, Lisa Canada was a huge um, impact on me. Mm -hmm. I remember being a second year med student and I had um, connected with her and she said, you know, just come to the OR, just come, you know, see a case, scrub a case, you know, and she just, her energy is just infectious. I mean, so she, it was the first case we did was, it was a nail, um, Mm -hmm. and a green nail. And she just said, you know, kind of whatever I could do as a medicine, I could help, you know, move the patient. I could pull traction on the leg when they were putting the nail in, you know, and just any, I'm just getting my hands on it and just seeing that nail. Like, I was just like, that is the coolest thing. (laughs) Like that is just, you know, and then, and then as you learn more, like the implant design and, Mm -hmm. you know, preserving the blood supply and getting, you know, anatomic alignment and getting it to heal. I mean, all of that is just so amazing, but Mm -hmm. the case itself is just really fun. So, so that was, um, I think, you know, I knew I already had an interest in orthopedics, but seeing that, um, fracture fixation and that kind of case was just so gave me so much exhilaration and adrenaline mm-hmm. and just that um that kind of excitement I don't think has ever faded so even when I right. talk to people about cases or or even um you know doing those kinds of cases part of why I take Paul is you know doing those long bone fractures they're they're really fun and they're really mm-hmm. rewarding and um you know even just the implant design I mean it's been um even when I was in training, it's pretty state of the art, but I think there's always little refinements. There's always new things to learn, new little mm-hmm. tips and techniques that you can, um, you know, pick up and right. improve your craft. So, um, so the trauma side, I think, um, you know, I, I had an interest in early on and then just generally fractures, you know, it's each one is a little bit different. They're really challenging. They kind of make your brain think in a certain way. Um, and they're just really, really satisfying you know when you Mm -hmm. have like a even a peel on or an elbow and you piece it together and you get things to heal and you get people you know motion um 
you know, it's just, it's very, very satisfying. So I think that that part of me definitely um, spoke to the trauma side. Um, mm-hmm. But sports, I came in with a huge interest and in, always played a lot of sports, you know, had injuries and um, really wanted to, to treat and be involved with athletes and, and sports. I, I, my original, you know, dream job was that I wanted to be the Red Sox team physician. That was like, oh, you nice. know, that's a, mm-hmm. yeah. And, you know, then as you sort of get further along in the field and you see, um, you know, how much of that, you know, is some politics and team management and, um, you mm-hmm. know, it's just, um, it's not all kind of just glitz and glamour and getting to mm-hmm. take care, you know, you can definitely take care of athletes in a very rewarding way on a, on a, um, a smaller scale. Um, right. And so I think as I got along, and even I should mention my fellowship, another reason why I had um, been interested in it was at the time that I was applying for fellowships, they were taking care of the uh, Sacramento Kings, the NBA team. And I was like, mm. oh, that's so awesome. You know, I want to <laughs> be involved in NBA team. But um, when I got there, the, actually the team um, coverage had gone over to Kaiser and mm. um, I ended up being the team position for um, a community, a two-year community college, Sac City College. But it ended up being an awesome experience. As the fellow, I was the doctor. Like, I was mm-hmm. the doctor on the sidelines. There was no attending. And I was treating the athletes, making those decisions myself. And I think for me as a sports doc, it was huge to be, right. you know, actually the one, you know, making those decisions and being hands-on and doing reductions sometimes, sidelines. And, you know, so um, I think I through all of that, I saw that, you know, I just, I want to take care of athletes, whether it's, you know, adolescent athletes or just the recreational, you know, athlete like myself now, it's just, um, I know how important it is to, to athletes, you know, just right, to be right. active and play sports. It doesn't have to be on the pro level. So, um, yeah, so I think, you know, I always had that interest and, um, now I think it's really, really fun for me to be truly 50, 50 and, um, you know, do the trauma, do the fractures, you know, treat calcaneus fractures and, and elbow fractures, um, but also do the ACLs and the, and the multi-leg knees, um, mm-hmm. rotator cuffs. And, and um, well, I think it's, you know, for some surgeons, it really appeals to them. They do a total knee and a total hip so well and so efficiently, you know, whereas I just, my, my, the way my mind is, I just really want the variety. And it mm-hmm. definitely means, um, it means more challenge sometimes. Sometimes I'm studying for cases like I'm a resident, you know, I'm like the week before I'm, I'm you know, rereading um, the literature and I'm looking right. at videos and I'm taking notes and I'm thinking, you know, what's my plan ABCD? What do I need for this case? Whereas, you know, if you're doing, if you're an orthoplasty surgeon or, or um, you know, you're doing things that you're just really, really good at, but you do a lot, um, you probably you know, it's, you don't need that kind of preparation. So So, um, I think it just, it keeps me challenged and, you know, keeps me on my toes. So um, having that complement of both, I think really Mm -hmm. suits me well. Is there one that you like more than the other, or is it kind of like children and you can't say that? Um, Yeah, good question. (laughs) Um, I went into residency really thinking sports for sure. Um, And then, you know, we had talked about Brown being the sixth year program. um, Mm -hmm. And I don't think I came back to it much. But um, that was definitely a a huge draw for me going in. I think everybody was saying, you know, six years, come on, five years is long enough. Like, why do you want to do a sixth year? And and, uh, but that trauma training, you know, would I have chosen to do a trauma fellowship? 
Probably not. I probably would have just done sports if I'd come out of five-year program, but um, I think that was great training for me. It made me really versatile and really, um, you know, we did, we had a really busy pediatric and adult um, level one trauma center. So I get a lot of PD fractures and got experience with that. And that's something that I feel comfortable doing now. Mm -hmm. Um, And so um, I think, um, you know, there's definitely aspects to both. I love, I wouldn't give up the trauma, even though I felt like I was kind of um, going in as more of a pure sports um, enthusiast and pure right. sports surgeon. Um, I just, in, you know, I love arthroscopy, but I definitely, um, I love treating the fractures too. So I think it, I think it truly is 50, 50. Um, <laughs> you know, I just, if I were to be, um, you know, and I like that compliment, I would say, if I, you know, if you're true trauma, you really should be taking care of the acetabular fractures and um, being able to treat non-unions and more complex deformities. And, that, and that's not necessarily me. So what's mm-hmm. nice is, you know, developing relationships with colleagues that where um, I know who can treat those mm-hmm. things because that's just not my, you know, expertise or even right. my desire. Um, right. But I'm able to treat, you know, a lot of the fractures, which is really fun. And then... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, doing the sports, I feel, you know, comfortable doing all the sports cases um, right. and, and skilled, you know, to, to treat those. So awesome. Awesome. <laughs> Very cool. I would like to transition to your leadership role mm-hmm. as chair of the professional development committee of the Ruth Jackson Orthopedic Society. Mm-hmm. And just for our review for our listeners, I know we've mentioned um, RJOS multiple times, but uh, RJOS is basically the society that's committed to advancing the science and practice of orthopedic surgery amongst women. And so I was hoping that you can talk about when and why did you first join RJOS? Yeah. Um, so again, Lisa Canva was the one who got me involved. Um, she, when I was a second year med student said, you got to join our JOS, you know? And so when she says something, you do it. It's just, um, I mean, she's awesome and she's, you know, I knew it was obviously my best interest. And so looked into it, joined, and then applied for a med student fellowship to attend the meeting. And it was just awesome. We did a casting workshop and it was, Mm -hmm. I mean, just incredible to be able to go to the meeting and, and network and, um, listen to the talks from the other surgeons and, um, you know, just have that influence. And so, you know, I've remained a member since I joined, um, and it's been huge, you know, throughout um, residency, you know, I definitely stayed in touch with um, Dr. Canada. I think could have even taken more advantage of um, her um, sort of willingness to be a mentor because, mm-hmm. um, you know, at my institution, we have a, a couple female attendings. And I think, you know, it's like anything where um, and, you know, I would revisit this more. But I think, um, you know, we all have different personalities. And I think it's awesome if you can find a female um, who is your mentor and your champion and who you can Mm -hmm. develop a bond with. But I think often, you know, orthopedics is, you know, 10 to 15% women. So there's going to be a lot more men. And I think um, in a lot of ways, they can be our partners and advocates and mentors. So Mm -hmm. um, in my, you know, residency, I I found, uh, you know, a few male um, attendings and who are more in a mentorship type of role. Um, mm-hmm. And so maintaining that relationship with Dr. Canada and then, and then maintaining the connection with our JOS. So, um, you know, staying a member and going to the meetings and mm-hmm. um, 
seeing all the amazing opportunities and resources, I mean, RJOS has just blown up. I mean, every right. year it's like incredible that, that if you just go on the website and see the resources we have and, and the various grants and traveling fellowships and, um, you know, now we're expanding our scholarships to the med students and, and mm-hmm. residents to so many more people to be able to attend the meeting. Um, it's just incredible. So I've, I've been really impressed with, um, with the organization and just been really happy to be a part of it. Um, and so I was always interested in, um, you know, the mentorship committee in particular and the professional development committee. I think um, on both, we're providing some resources that are really unique. So the professional mm-hmm. development committee, we have, you know, this contract negotiation document I mentioned. I had written a pearls for private practice document that's on there. Um, you know, various ways to connect that are, um, that mm-hmm. are really, really beneficial for people. Um, and then with mentorship, of course, I mean, that's, you know, there's so many benefits to having a mentor. Mm-hmm. I see so much growth in RJOS. It's just, right. you know, particularly, um, we've gotten a lot of male involvement, which is just I know. phenomenal. It's just, I, I mean, know. on our committee, not even just members, yes. we have two male members of our committee, which is just, it just makes me so happy and so psyched. And they're yes. such great contributors. And, right. um, you know, they just, yeah, it's just awesome. And so I think for us to advance in our field, like I think many of your other um, podcast guests have said, you know, we really need our male counterparts to, um, right. you know, just be exactly that, be partners for us and, and mm-hmm. advocates and just, um, you know, change the, change the face, change the, the, the customs, change the culture. Um, and so mm-hmm. um, I think it's awesome that we have so many females out there who are, who are role models and mentors, but um, you know, not everybody wants to necessarily do that. Some people just right. want to be surgeons and, um, you know, they're not going to um, maybe join these committees or, or, you know, be as involved. Whereas we have some of the male members who are so involved and so supportive. Mm-hmm. And so I think um, there's definitely a lot of opportunity there for the, um, you know, the younger, the younger surgeons out there to look to their you know, male mentors as well. Right, right. I know. And I, I think what's great is that we've spoken so much about mentorship and the mm-hmm. importance of mentorship. And I know that Dr. Canada has just done so much um, for you and your career. Mm-hmm. And I was hoping that you can talk about kind of what it is that makes a great mentor and how is mm-hmm. it that we ourselves can be great mentors to others? Yes, absolutely. Um, so I think one is maintaining regular contact. So mm-hmm. I know that um, I've been a mentor through RJOS and, um, you know, I've definitely been guilty of um, being available, but not, you know, when, when we talk, not setting the next date that we're going to talk right. or email right. or, and so I think it's great. Um, and it's definitely a two-way street. You know, the, the mentor, sh- the mentee should be, um, reaching out and being proactive that way. And I've mm-hmm. definitely been on that side and, and thought I should be taking more advantage of this, but I don't want to, you know, I don't want to bother my mentor. I don't want right, to, you know, right. she's so busy. I just, you know, but, um, but both sides saying, okay, let's set the next time that we're going to check in. Um, you know, when it's, um, not necessarily, you have X coming up or, you know, something mm-hmm. you need advice about, but just having regular, um, interaction, I think is really important. Um, I think uh, that's probably the major thing. And then just responding to, um, responding to the needs, you know, as they come up. But, but I think establishing that regular connection, it's, it's hard because we're all busy. Um, but I, I think that is, that is probably the, the, the you know, the, the foundation of it. 
Nice. Very yeah. cool. I know. I do want to talk about the future. And I know that mm -hmm. you're busy and we're, you know, sort of still in this coronavirus pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so it's hard for us to think about the future. But I was hoping you can describe your future projects and goals that you have. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, even though I'm now... Um, um, out of I'm six years out of fellowship. So I, as I mentioned, I had two years with a large group and then, mm -hmm. um, essentially I've been, um, almost four years now, three and a half, um, solo private Congratulations. Um, thank you very much. <laughs> um, and so, you know, before, um, coronavirus hit, I actually felt like I had pretty good momentum. Um, mm -hmm. I think with any practice, particularly with private practice, it feels some weeks like, Oh, you know, I'm busy. I'm like seeing, you know, the types of things I want to see. I feel like my practice is coming along and then some weeks you're like man I just you know I feel like I'm at square one like how why am I not getting referrals what what's going on you know and so um, I definitely still feel a little bit like I'm in the phase of ramping up um, which I think in the area I'm in is, is pretty typical you know it's three mm -hmm. to five years to really get busy and established um, and but before coronavirus fit, I, hit I was feeling you know pretty good like I had good momentum and and um, making some good good strides. And then, um, I definitely felt very anxious about whether my practice was sustainable or again, how am I going to get all referrals and, and right. those kinds of concerns. And then now I'm seeing my practice, you know, get busy again, um, and feel mm -hmm. more secure. So, so I feel good that way. Um, for me in particular, as I mentioned, I'm adding a second location. So I really right. expect to grow that. Um, and really hit volume there. And I mentioned, you know, it's a more diverse population, a lot of Spanish speaking, I speak Spanish. So I'm um, really reaching out to that community and, and oh, nice. really building that up. Yeah, and having mm -hmm. that um, experience. Um, I think um, continuing to build the, um, what I have with the, you know, the 50-50, the um, but trying to do more of certain things that, um, I do, but I don't really see a whole lot of volume of like shoulder arthroplasty, for instance. So really mm -hmm. working to um, to build that um, as well as pediatric fractures is another area that I treat some, but I want to um, build that. Um, mm -hmm. So along with the other aspects, the, um, you know, the, the arthroscopy and, and uh, the, the trauma. Awesome. Very cool. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Morali Larson. Yeah. And I do want to get into the final five, which is mm -hmm. our last segment that we have mm -hmm. on the She Can Fix It podcast. And this is a segment that I ask all guests on mm -hmm. our podcast. And so I was hoping for our, my first final five question, what is your favorite procedure to perform and why? You know, I would think I'd have like one answer for that, but I, you know, I would, I just think of so many different examples with that question. Right. So, you know, an ACL, of course, I'm a sports surgeon. ACL is like, technically, I feel like I can do it really well. For the most mm -hmm. part, patients do really well. Um, you know, I enjoy educating them about prevention, even in the future. And um, so that, you know, that um, I'd say multi-leg knees are really challenging, but really, really awesome anatomy and just a really cool case. Um, so mm -hmm. that's definitely up there. Um, a lot of different fractures I treat are really, you know, really uh, fun and satisfying. And uh, I like being able to treat fractures all over the body. So um, doing nails are just they're really fun, mm -hmm. you know, like tibia nails, femoral nails, they're just fun cases. So I think all of those are up there. <laughs> so everything, everything. Yeah, <laughs> totally. 
That's awesome. <laughs> um, my next question for you is what are your go-to topics for Grand Round presentations? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I do more, I would say, community-type talks. So mm-hmm. um, I go to physical therapy facilities. I do community talks for the school where I'm a team physician. Um, and then also I go and speak to primary care doctors. So among those, some of my favorites are definitely um, platelet-rich plasma. and something I use oh. a fair amount in my practice. And I think the science is really, really interesting. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's a lot of really good data to support, um, you know, which formulations to use and where to use it and when. So um, that's something I definitely really enjoy talking about. And I think it's pretty exciting for people too because it's, you know, it's in the media, but not a whole lot is really known by most people. So I think that's right. that's a really fun one, interesting one to talk about. Um, definitely ACL, you know, the latest the updates, the prevention. Um, talking about, you know, partial tears or ACL repair versus reconstruction. So um, that, that's a fun one. And then um, shoulder arthroplasty is another one. So just talking mm. about, you know, the rationale and um, the rehab and, and um, you know, topics associated with shoulder arthroplasty is another good one. Awesome. Very cool. Now, this is usually the toughest question. And mm-hmm. it is, what is your favorite story slash memory as an mm-hmm. orthopedic surgeon? Yeah, you know, there's so many. That is a that is a tough one again. Um, you know, I definitely uh, what I mentioned with Dr. Canva getting me in the OR and that first case I saw and it right. being a nail and just being feeling that electricity. I mean, I'll, I'll, I won't ever forget that. You know, that mm-hmm. is huge. Um, I've had you know just so many so many rewarding um, patients to treat um, that you know, there's a lot that comes to mind. I recently had a patient who, um, had an unfortunate, you know, um, multi-extremity, um, injury. She was actually in Alaska with her husband and they got into a car accident. And so oh, she no. had, yeah, she'd had a plateau fixed there, but on the other knee she had, and ankle, she had fractured, um, she had a medium LLS fracture and she had a, a knee dislocation, which they reduced. Oh, there. Gosh. And she had a, yeah. PCL postural corner. Um, and so I did, you know, I fixed her ankle, um, and I'd staged the PCL postural corner because I wanted her to recover a bit mm-hmm. from a tibial plateau on the other side. So I recently did that case. And so, although they're terrible injuries, it was, um, you know, really, I thought kind of the good compliment for me, my trauma and sports background, right. kind of really able to take care of all of her injuries. Um, and also I think with any of our patients, you know, all of those are so difficult to go through and sort of, um, taking the extra time and, you know, connecting with her and, um, Mm -hmm. kind of talking her through some of the, you know, the mental aspects of recovery. I think, um, that's been really rewarding and, and given how bad her injury was, she's doing, you know, really, really well. So that's, um, those kinds of cases are just, um, you know, they stick with you and they're they're rewarding. Oh, that's so sweet. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, my next question is, I know we spend a lot of time in the operating room and in the hospital, but what are your favorite activities outside of medicine? Mm-hmm. Um, so I have a lot. So that's definitely <laughs> a huge reason why private practice really suits me well, because it gives right. me a lot of flexibility and um, enough free time to pursue all of that. So um, so my, my daughter's two and a half. And so having oh. time to spend with her um, and with my husband, you know, all of us together is just, that's huge. Um, mm-hmm. This age is just incredible how fast they change and how much <laughs> um, energy they take. And, you know, at that age, some days are not great, <laughs> depending yes. on her mood, but most days are just amazing and, and so much fun. And so having some time to spend with both of them is great. Um, 
activity wise tennis is my huge go-to so that's a huge mm-hmm. just it's competitive it's fun you know play on the mm-hmm. team and um so that that's a huge go-to for me and then you know we like to get outside and camp and hike and all that right. stuff that we can definitely take advantage of in the area we're in so yes know, in yeah. on the west coast yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh and so my last question for you dr morelli larson is what advice do you have for orthopedic surgeons and orthopedic surgeons in training mm-hmm. um so i mentioned you know if people think private practice might be appealing to them to try to get some exposure or some connection um to surgeons who are in private practice during residency um it's never too early to to try to get that um exposure or connection um and then um if it's a decision that people make i would say start um you know a year ahead of when you decide to actually start your job for some Mm -hmm. of the things for instance if it is solo private practice there's a lot of you know you need to establish a tax id you need to get contracts you need to um, figure out a lot of things that it just takes time so you have to Mm -hmm. start doing it um and then just in terms of um your growth as a surgeon and um you know getting better and better as a surgeon so something i do now that i did in my training was i carry you know a notebook that's um sort of small enough to fit wherever I need to carry it. And I, you know, take notes. Like, so when I'm preparing for a case, I'll take a lot of notes. And if it's a case I do all the time, you know, I'm not doing that. But if it's a case I haven't done in a while, you know, I review what I'm going to do. I write out my plan and then I revisit it afterwards and take more notes. Um, and I think about, you know, what am I going to need at the surgery center? Mm-hmm. What am I going to need if I need a backup, you know? And so um, thinking through all those things. And I think um, if you start during residency, try to kind of have that mindset like almost like it's you're the attending and it's your case and if right. you um you know and I think in the beginning stages you're just learning how to operate and learn how to do those things but once you get a little bit further on you know mm-hmm. um thinking of that and I you know those notebooks I mean particularly my one from fellowship I mean I use it all the time you know all these right. notes that I took on cases I go back and little tips and tricks like if you don't write it down you won't remember <laughs> but if you you know right. if you write it down and I you know I'll put I put little tabs on certain cases and it's just it's really helpful to have those those notes that um you know you certainly go to courses and you certainly pick up things along the way, but those things you learn during your training are definitely going to be really valuable. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, taking the time to write things down and, and, and you know, a way that works for you and, and keep it organized, I think it's, it's huge and, and will definitely help you as a surgeon. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Morelli Larson, for speaking with me today. It's just been so fantastic, and I feel like I've learned so much. So thank you awesome. so much. Oh, happy to do it. Yeah, super psyched to be on this podcast. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Jothi Morali-Larson. Please subscribe to our podcast to show your support. Another way you can provide support and keep this podcast up and running is to donate. You can visit our website at www.shecanfixitpod.com and visit our donation page. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at shecanfixitpod. I want to take this time to thank my editor and co-producer, Andrea Vennie Kirk, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Thank you so much for listening, and please stay safe.